Could you open up to Colossians chapter 3? We are on our last, our last message for the month of January. And the idea is we have been here at St. Pete's Lodge talking about fishing and taking aspects about fishing and making them apply to Christianity. The first week we talked about the fish. We learned all about the fish. How we are the fish. And all humans are the fish. The next week we learned about bait and how to use bait to attract fish to the hook. Last week, Pastor Jared talked about catching fish. Talked about the prodigal son and the lady who's looking for the lost coin. Well, today's our final step. The final step, if you're a good fisherman, everybody knows your objective is to clean the fish. To kill and clean the fish. That's what we're going to talk about today. Years ago, I had a good friend that worked as, uh, to a degree as a church expert. And I asked him this question. I said, today in Christianity, leaders are boasting about just how the gospel is getting out like never before. You can, uh, if you look across the Christian landscape, we have more big rock and roll Christian concerts than we've ever had. They're making tons of money. We have high-quality movies coming out. Some Christians would disagree with that, but they're high-quality movies coming out. We have technological advances in communication just with the way that we can use media and get the gospel on not just social media, but a lot of Christians have their message online getting out there. It's all over. Revivals actually are happening at a record pace across the world. And uh, not to mention that we have quite a lot of megachurches in the United States that are boasting salvation story after salvation story. So my question was, why then doesn't all this evangelical success result in cultural change? Not just in the Christian church, but across America. Because if you look, divorce, drunkenness, pornography, and outright hatred, specifically racial hatred, is really just as prevalent as it's always been, if not worse. So the question is, what is the problem? The man looked at me and he said, oh, it's very simple. The problem's very simple. He said, most churches and Christian organizations have forgotten this one thing. They've forgotten that after you catch a fish, it needs to be cleaned. That's all he said. But if you think about that, that is profound. We have all kinds of organizations that are catching fish, and all they do is just keep catching fish. But what do we do with them? How do we clean them? That's what we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 17, which talks very specifically about it. But I want to begin just by reading the first five verses, and then we're going to jump off of that throughout the sermon. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So this is what we're going to use to begin. Let me read it again, but just kind of 
give you a little bit uh, more commentary. If then you've been raised with Christ, it's another phrase. If you've been saved, if you have accepted Christ your Savior, in the eyes of God, you've been raised with him. You have what's called positional salvation. That means in God's mind, you are sitting with Christ at the right hand of God. And if you are, then why don't you start seeking those things that are above the heavenly life? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It is that stop living the way you used to. We'll get into that. And the reason is because you have died. Fishing to God for human beings is not a hobby. He is not like the nature-loving fisherman that is relaxing in the summer sun on a boat, sitting on a lake of glass under sleepy blue skies who just catches fish for the fun of it. Plop, plop. God is actually, he goes fishing to kill the fish. He goes fishing so he can kill the fish. You can say it like this. Christianity is not about playing a game of catch and release, getting as many as we can and just let them, just get them saved. That's it. It means, Christianity means death, certain death. The cross of Jesus is more than a symbol. Crucifixion is meant to be a way of life. Look again at Colossians 3.3. You have died. You've died. That is a statement that is true, supposed to be true of you if you're a Christian. You have died. So death should be a given for us, but honestly, we don't like to talk about it. Jesus and him crucified is to be the central tenet of our faith, but we skirt around it because death isn't fun. It just isn't. It's fun to talk about, if I'm a Christian, all the good things I can get in Christ, but we don't like to talk about death. One writer said, if the difference between Christ dying for us, so dying for us means something happened 2,000 years ago, the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with him, present tense, has not been recognized, acknowledged, and applied, it may safely be affirmed that the self is still the dominating factor in your life. Let me read that again. If the difference between Christ dying for us and we, us dying with him, has not been recognized, we're still living in the flesh. In other words, you can put it like this. If the fish is caught but is never killed and cleaned, it is still smelling, still stinky. So my walk with Jesus begins the moment I die. Paul says this all through the New Testament. He doesn't mince words. In 1 Corinthians 15, 36, he's writing to those who seem to have forgotten about the importance of dying. He writes, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. It is a central theme. To be risen with Christ, you must die. But how? How do I die? Because I think in practical ways, when I read about dying, it sounds really nice, but I don't have any idea how to die, really. Because I'm still alive. How do I die? Do I uh, overdose on pills while holding a Bible? Is that how I die in Christ? Do I slam my car 100 miles an hour into a church? Because that could be a nice Christian death. Is that how I die? I don't know if that would be a nice death, but it might be Christian if you go to the right church. Colossians 3 gives us a really clear answer in verse 5. 
talks about the kind of death we are to die. It says in verse 5, put to death, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The NIV says, put to death your, your earthly or your worldly nature. It means, here's what it means, like a pea-brained little fish, human beings are born with a natural urge to swim with the crowd by being carried away by the currents of the world onto damnation. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. That's Proverbs 14.12. 1 John 2.14-15 calls these dangerous currents the world system. It's the matrix. And behind everything you see is a matrix or water that we're all swimming in, and it's polluted, and it's toxic, and Satan stirs it up with his red, clawed finger. Romans 8, 21 and 22 says, creation as we know it today is in bondage. It's in bondage to decay and it's groaning under the weight of sin's chains. If you listen really close on a cold January day and you go out to the forest that our trees have no leaves and the wind is whipping through them, you can hear moans. In minor keys. That's the idea that this world is not the way it should be. It's fallen. It's broken. We're swimming in dangerous waters, which is called the world system. This world system has an overwhelming influence over us. It shapes our tastes, and it conditions our hearts, and it manipulates our feelings and our emotions. Are led away by it every single day, and it whispers lies. You're worth it. You are special. It is this system and these lies that Paul wants us to kill, to put to death. So let's describe the deadly current. So you can say we have a deadly current. And this is the current that we're swimming in. It's moving quickly. And it has three streams. And the first stream in 1 John 2.16 is labeled as the pride of life. It's how I see myself, pride. It's who I am. It's my identity. It's the person I work hard at presenting to you on a daily basis. I want you to see me in the best light possible. And that's the one I work on all the time. Verse 9 calls this the old self. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So you could ask it like this to find out what, what pride is in you. What do you take pride in? What do you take credit for? You could say, what is it about you that makes you better than others, that sets you apart? None of us, honestly, would publicly admit that we think we're better. We don't publicly say that, but in our hearts we think it every day. We wonder, why am I? I'm, people just do not measure up to me. That's pride. Pride is what causes you to compare. And to say you don't compare is a lie. You do it every day. You know you do it. Many of you, when you came into the church today, probably looked at somebody that you considered less than you, smaller than you in mind, ability, and even social status. And maybe you looked at your phone because you didn't want to talk to them. Or you went to the other side of the church. because I'm just, 
man, you say to yourself, I'm just glad I'm not like them. That's pride talking. Some of us have spent our, whoop, let that go. I'm done with that portion. So ignore that. Ignore that. And if you're thinking, I would never do that preaching up there, then that's pride talking. Kill it. I do that. See how I do that purposely? I get you engaged, engage you. But some of us have spent our whole life, we really have trying to be seen better, proving ourselves, and even demanding respect from people and recognition. That's pride. The second stream in 1 John 2.16 is labeled as the desires of the flesh or lust. And you say it like that, lust. It's the animal inside of you that moves your body to want something it shouldn't have and want it now. It's the hungry beast that's inside of me that demands to be fed. Lust takes our normal desires and appetites and spins them out of control. To be honest with you, lust is illogical. When you try to figure out why do you want what you want, you just want it. That's why when you try to make sense of why you want it, you actually want it more. It's really odd. Lust is a, it's a, it's a beast. It's a mindless pig and slop that compels me to go and do on my time in my way, and God's opinion is ignored. In fact, lust is so good at convincing you to take what is not yours that God's warnings mean nothing. Colossians verse 5 kind of describes what lust is like when it gets a hold of our heart. Colossians 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. This is how lust works itself out, sexual immorality. Hebrews chapter 13 says the marriage bed is pure. That's the the right place to have sex. So fornication before sex and adultery after is not the right place. But lust doesn't care. Impurity is the next one. It means filth, filthy mind, thinking on filthy things. Passion is... In this sense, the best way to describe passion, it's a dog in heat. Evil desire is that thing that's forbidden you want to do. So if you see that sign on the guardrail at the hotel that says, please do not stand on the guardrail and jump in a pool, I want to stand on the guardrail and I'm going to jump in the pool. That's lust driving you. It's an animal, heavy breathing, heavy breathing, heavy breathing. This is lust. Then the third stream in 1 John 2.16 is the desires of the eyes or greed. This is adopting materialism as your guiding principle or worldview. It's living for right now. You've heard life is short, then you die, so live it up now. Greed convinces you, not only do I want to live now, I deserve it. It's mine. I saw it first. It's not yours. Give it to me. It is when we think things... Greed is thinking that things and having more things than somebody else defines success in life. That's real living when they have a lot of things. Or you might have heard a bird in a hand is worth worth two in the bush. Greed says money in a hand is worth an invisible God in a bush. It's putting money as, I can do something with that now, that's why I need it. God... That's why if you notice in the end of verse 5, covetousness is idolatry. It's putting something ahead of God. 
money. Colossians uses the word covetousness as something that is still part of my earthly nature. And when I can't get what I want, or when someone has what I want, it results in verse 6 through 8. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger. Give me that. Wrath. Oh, I'm going to fight you for it. Malice. I hate you. Slander. You, You see that guy? He's a rotten fink. Obscene talk. Blah, blah, blah. I just garbage out. Look what 6 and 7 says about a person that has that. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, you should get rid of that. In these ways, you should be done with that. You once walked that way, and the implication is stop it. Stop swimming in this toxic water. James asks the question in 4.1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war with you? Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This earthly nature, this deadly current we are swimming in is killing us and it's causing us to smell like rotten fish. That's the point. So the next point is, so in order to save us from dying in this toxic water, God has to kill us. So he goes fishing in order to kill us. Listen to this writer, Arpax, and he says, The old eye, which is the old, all of these things, the old eye in you and me was judicially crucified with Christ. It's a big word, judicially, but what that means is there was a judge, when I got saved, he slammed the gavel and said, Chris is dead, he now lives with my son. So the old eye in you and me was judicially crucified with Christ. You died. And your death dates from the death of Christ. The old man, the old self, in God's reckoning or in God's mind, was taken to the cross with Christ and crucified. And then was placed in the tomb with Christ and buried. So truly, as Paul has said, according to verse 3, you have died. But how many of us have honestly died? I mean, really. How many of you really consider yourself dead? Or do you secretly delight in swimming in toxins? Paul Paul says this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Or you could say it like this. Why do you keep swimming in the water that is killing you? I was thinking about that because, we, you know, you're pulled to it. We're all pulled to it. We're all quick to get angry. We're all quick to want things and to define life by having more and the best. Why? I think one of the answers is this. On a practical level, I think because we've never been taught how to die. Practically. We don't know how to get clean. Even if we want to, how do I die? It doesn't make sense because I'm Because it says, I'm still alive, but I'm dead. How how does that make sense? Go to Luke 22, and Jesus will show us very simply how to die. Luke 22, verse 41 to 44, this is how we die. Jesus is um, just left what's called the upper room. He's with his disciples. He's heading over to really be tried before he goes to the cross. But in the middle of the trial and the upper room, there's this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, 
where he takes his disciples to pray. And listen to his prayer starting in verse 41. And he withdrew, Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. That means that blue wall to me is about a stone's throw. So Jesus was here, the disciples would be about that far away. For the purpose, verse 41, he knelt down and he prayed. So he's going to talk to God. Prayer is just talking to the Father. Verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is cup? The wrath of God. The payment of our sin. Remove this cup cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And he began in agony. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It is my personal opinion and my conviction that in this moment in the garden, Jesus died the harder death, the real death. Jesus sweated drops of blood, the agony of dying to my desires, my comfort, giving up my life, my identity, is the death that is the hardest to die, but it's the death that leads to life. That is why I think the writer to Hebrews 12.4 said, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it's in the resisting where dying occurs. It's resisting. It's resisting pride, lust, and greed. So when I want to prove myself and how great I am, look how great I am. God says, Chris, die. Will you die? When the beast inside of me wants to look at things I shouldn't look at, grab things that are not mine to grab, hold tightly to things that God wants me to give away. God says, Chris, die. When someone offends me and I want to retaliate, and someone succeeds and envy prompts me to want to slander them? Yeah, those guys. God says, Chris, just die. Die. So in prayer, I say, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. This, I am convinced, is the death that is the hardest to die. So, from that point on, the moment I die, here's, the, here's what happens. The moment I die, it creates room in my soul for God's Spirit to finally make Himself at home. Why does God's Spirit want to dwell in a home that smells like dead fish? Stinky fish. He wants to clean it out so then He can live in me. He wants to make Himself home in my life and This starts happening when a new man is born. I call this life in the boat. It's life in the boat. The old is gone, the new is birthed. I become a newly begotten child of God. We call this being born again. A clean, fresh life begins to form in my life. I don't stink anymore. I'm clean on the inside. Colossians verse 10. Go back to Colossians. Look at verse 10. He describes it very simply, actually. Verse 10 is one of those verses that often gets caught in the middle of all of the stuff, but it's explaining this new life, verse 10, and having put on the new self, 
See, the old self died, so now I put on a new self, which is being renewed. That word renewed reminds me of, ah, fresh air. Deb, Deb often, I've seen her, this is a Honeywell air freshener. You can't see it, air purifier. She lets us borrow a couple of them, and when that goes in, it takes the old air and clicks in and puts new air into the house. This is what that word reminds me of. I'm being renewed. And I'm being renewed in knowledge. My mind is changing. And in the image, and I'm becoming like God. I'm becoming the person God's always wanted me to be. That's what life in the boat's all about. So you look at it like this. Here's the analogy all month. The grand fisherman, God himself, starts this fishing expedition. He does it out of love. He drops the hook down into the deadly current, the toxic water, to catch me. That's what verse 12 is all about. Verse 12 says, put on in as God's chosen ones. He chose me. He wanted me. He reaches down his hook into the deadly waters, and once I see the bait and I bite on the gospel, he pulls me up. According to Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, he pulls me up to be seated with Christ into his boat, and he kills me. And he recreates me to live in him and with him. I am now with him. I join in his life. I put on a new self. And if you notice verse 11, there's the first thing that dies is pride. Look at verse 11. The first thing he wants to kill is our identity, who I see myself as. That's why he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. In here, in this boat, sitting next to God, there is not this, new, this old identity. In other words, and I wish people would get this, I wish they would get it, I am no longer to see myself through my race, through my family, even through my elite group that I belong to because there's no Jew and Greek. Stop this. Stop it. It's over. You're dead. The second thing he says that's dead is circumcision or uncircumcision. Who cares how good of a Christian you are? Who cares what church you went to for 30 years? You're dead. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Quit this meritorious religious work. It's a bunch of baloney. Because what you're saying, if I can do all this religious thing, how do you compare that to dying on the cross? Jesus did everything, so stop trying to prove you're religious. You're not. Die. And then the last thing is he talks about this whole idea of who cares if you're slave or you're free. Barbarian is a rotten person. Scythian, they were looked down on. Who cares about all that? In other words, I would say even stop wearing your victimhood badge. The badge of victimhood. Why don't you just see yourself solely as Christ's possession? Christ is all and in all. Look at the end of verse 3 again. This is an amazing statement. Verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden. It's hidden with Christ in God. Another uh, cross-reference idea of being hidden is they say, 
hidden yeast inside the batch of dough. And the idea is that you can't see the yeast because all you see is the dough. It's the same way. My little teeny life is now inside Christ. He is to become me. He now can do with me anything he wants because he's my master. Most of us get this backwards. What we usually say is once I become a Christian, Christ comes into me and makes my life me better. I become more successful. I am a, become a better person. I become more religious. I become more moral. And we can be proud of our Christian heritage more now, but Jesus is really in it. You know, it's not, God doesn't enter our life to bless us. We enter his life to be changed, to be different, to glorify him. I, the proud, greedy animal that used to be, no longer lives. I now live by faith in the Son of God. And then the question is, how? How do I do this? Because this is where it gets hard. Verse 12 tells us how to do this. And actually, it's, it's written really clearly. It's actually a little matter-of-fact statement. Death is putting off the old self. And verse 12 says, put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, new things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I had a I had a professor at Moody that said it's kind of like you take off a coat, old coat, and put on a new coat. So he had an old, old coat he was wearing, and he just put on a new coat. And so you take off the old, you put on a new, and that's true. But, but, you know, when you take off the old and put on a new, it's almost like a change of just style. It's, no, 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 no. It's not a change of style. This, cha- this exchange is not an equal exchange. It's no, nowhere clear. The old coat, the old coat, was a peasant's old, scratchy, burlap coat coated with animal hair, blood, and stinking of urine, and it was falling apart. This new coat is the coat of a king. It's rubbed down with the finest oils, perfumed in royal fragrances. It's made of soft silk and quality linen. This coat is majestic. This coat is like nothing I've ever worn before. That old life, it's dead. It stinks. This new life is amazing. So here's what you could say. So to take off the old coat, the old coat of pride, I exchange it for compassion, kindness, and humility. Pride, this old coat, once demanded to be known, look at me, look at me, look how great I am. Compassion, kindness, and humility. Humility is an amazing word. You know what humility really means? It doesn't mean you think lowly of me. It means you don't think of me at all. And then I put on compassion and kindness. Pride only wanted you to notice me. Compassion and kindness means I can't help but notice you. How do I help you? It's putting other people first. Lust. Take off the coat of lust and it get exchanged for meekness and patience. Lust, grabbed and clawed like an animal. Meekness, even though it's strong. Jesus was meek. Jesus could, Jesus could with the word tear the world apart, but he, he was meek. So where lust grabs and claws, meekness lets go and patience waits. Instead of breathing heavy, stale, bloody breath like lust did, I take deep breaths of God's fresh air and wait for him to show up and just enjoy his presence. The uh, code of greed, look at verse 13. 
The code of greed gets exchanged for this word called forgiveness. Greed only wants to receive. Give me, give me, give me, give me more, more, more. Forgiveness gives, 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 gives 70 times 7. See, a peasant needs, peasant wearing smelly coat needs, I need more. A king who wears kingly, majestic robes can afford giving away because he has unlimited wealth. But there's more. Life with God always offers more. My old nature was a crippled human being, a shell of the person I was meant to become. My old man could only see in muted grays and blacks. But this new life sees in vivid colors, and now I join into a new kind of life starting in verse 14. Watch how this new life begins. I exchanged it, but I also get more, verse 14. And above all, put on love. So I get love. Love is how I treat my neighbor. And I get peace in verse 15. Peace. I get peace with God and I get love for others. But these can only be experienced by those who leave the toxic waters and dwell with God. And in verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. I get joy. I get a new life thankfulness in whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus because it's about him it's about him these things can only be experienced by those who live with God full of peace alive with love filled by the word of God and wanting to do the word of God listen to this quote I love this quote it's by uh, Frederick Beckner he said is it possible it's it's gonna this quote is gonna sound really weird but try to Sink your teeth into it. It's amazing. Is it possible, I wonder, to say that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? Huh? Let me read that again. Is it possible, I wonder, to say that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? What does that mean? Well, let's take Sarah and Abraham. Remember Sarah is 100 years old. She's sitting in the tent. Abraham, her husband, had these three angels that come to visit him and says, hey, Abraham, your wife's going to bear a child. And she's in the tent and she starts laughing. What? My body, my dead old body, my shriveled up old body's going to have a kid? That's a joke. And then it says God heard her laughing. And that's why her, her son's name was Isaac, which means to laugh. But that's, that's a joke. It's a marvelous joke. And it's true. Or like Jared shared last week about this prodigal son guy who was eating pig slop. And he said, if I go back home, I'll, I'll just go back home and be a slave with my dad. And the dad says, no, we're going to kill the fatted calf for you. What? That's a joke. No, it's a marvelous joke. It's a wonderful joke. You, you rebel, now get to feast. For a fish who is swimming in toxic water his whole life, hearing God that he wants to catch you and bring you to live with him on his boat is a wild and marvelous joke, but it is true. It's true. Pride, lust, and greed shrinks your soul. 
A world of selfishness is a small world centered only on the grumbling, always hungry, angry, nasty, old you. The life before Christ is like swimming in murky, toxic water. You can only see a little bit ahead, and everything stinks all the time. But life with God pulls you out of the water, brings you into the boat, kills you so you can have a new life and you can finally see. Jesus opens your eyes to a world as it was meant to be. You could say it like this, you were never truly alive until you die. You know how Jesus says this? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So God went fishing. That's why we say gone fishing for us. Now it's our turn to go fishing. So I'm going to use these two illustrations as two little seeds. And inside that seed is the gospel. If it's planted in a heart, it will break open into making that person a creation of eternity. But I want you to take these two seeds and I want you to plant them. Ask God to give you an opportunity to plant them first. Somebody in your family that you know doesn't know God. Could be a brother, a sister. Could be an aunt, an uncle. Could be a grandma. Could be your mom. Could be your kids. Some of you dads need to know where your kids are at and you're scared to talk to them. Ask God to give you opportunities to talk about this stuff and then plant that. Pray that God will give you opportunity to have a soft heart to plant this seed in. The other seed then is for a fresh fish, a new fish. Somebody outside somebody outside the Christian fold. Pray that God will show you somebody that We'll hear the gospel. I, when I first was saved, I, I went to this church and they said, write down five names of people you want to share the gospel with this year and ask that God, first of all, give you conversations and an opportunity to share the gospel. And I didn't know better, so I did it. You know, usually when you're in church a while, you don't do that kind of stuff because you're like, yeah, here we go again. But when you're a young Christian, you're like, that's a great idea. I think I'll pray for five people. And I did. And God started giving me like conversations I couldn't believe. I can remember one time, one person said, "Hey, what is just out of the blue? What does it mean to be saved?" And I said, "What did you just say? You're not supposed to ask me that. You're not Christian." So I ignored exactly what he said. But no, you start listening. And you're like, "Wow, I have opportunities all the. You have so many opportunities you wouldn't believe it. But you got to listen." What I would say is pray for these two, just two seeds that God would give you either a family member you know is lost or somebody you know in your circle that you rub shoulders with that needs the gospel because this water is toxic. It's killing them. They need to be saved.